Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and it's always a thrill to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Today's program is presented in anticipation of our upcoming exhibition, World War I, Beyond the Trenches, opening on May 26th. The program, today's program, The Great War, The Russian Revolution, and The Birth of the Modern Age is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for all his wonderful support, which has enabled us to invite so many historians and prominent historians and authors to New York Historical. I'd also like to thank our partner today in presenting today's program, the Foreign Policy Research Institute, who developed the program in collaboration with us. Finally, I'd like to thank our wonderful trustees and Chairman's Council members with us this morning for all their great so support and all of you, all our members, for your support. So let's give everyone a big hand. Thanks. Now we can all go. <laughs> the program will last an hour and a half, include a question and answer session, and the Q&A, as you may, most of you may already know, we now conduct the Q&A via written questions on note cards. So you should have received a card and pencil. If not, our staff right now, they're going up and down the aisles to see if you need another card or pencil, and they will be back in a little while later. If you have a question, you know, say 15, 20 minutes later, and they'll collect them, and our speaker will answer your questions. I just, now's the time when I ask everyone if you have a cell phone or an alarm, a little electronic alarm to please turn that, those off. And now I'd like to welcome Alan Luxemburg, the president of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, who will be introducing today's speaker. Based in Philadelphia, the FPR, FPRI's mission is to bring the insights of scholarship to bear on the foreign policy and national security challenges facing the United States. The Institute has been ranked as the number one think tank in the country with a budget of under $5 million. So please welcome Alan Luxemburg. Thank you. I'd also like to welcome everybody on behalf of the Foreign Policy Research Institute and to say what a pleasure it is to cooperate with the great New York Historical Society in presenting today's program and other programs during the year. Um, our uh, FPRI was founded in 1955 in Philadelphia on the premise that a nation should think before it acts. It was, it was good advice then, it's good advice today. Our mission, you heard from Dale, is to bring the insights of scholarship to bear on the foreign policy challenges facing the United States. And our method is to look at the world of today through the lens of history, geography, and culture. Or as one of my colleagues likes to say, we study the realities and mentalities of the localities. Now, no one does this better than our featured speaker today, uh, Professor Jeremy Black, a professor of history at the University of Exeter and a senior fellow of the Foreign Policy Research Institute. He's the author of over 100 books, which makes him probably the most prolific author in the history of the world, 
which I think makes him a historic historian. Um, his most recent books include The Holocaust, History and Memory, which is uh, less about the Holocaust and more about how it is remembered and misremembered. And his other books from 2016 include a history of air power and a history of naval power. Uh, today, we've asked him to speak on uh, World War I, the Russian Revolution, and the birth of the modern age. As you know, we commemorate the centennial of U.S. entry into World War I this week and later in the year, the centennial of the Russian Revolution. Uh, this is uh, Jeremy's third presentation at the New York Historical Society, and there's a reason they keep inviting him back, so please welcome back Jeremy Black. Thanks, Alan. Thanks very much. Well, good morning, everybody, and can I also uh, add my thanks to sponsors and others. If people didn't sponsor these kind of lectures, and if, quite frankly, you didn't come to them, we'd all be a world that just sat in front of our computers. We'd lack the kind of civic culture and civic engagement, which is the reason to be a citizen and a reason also to actually live in a city. So well done to all. This is not, this is not a slide about climate warming might look like that. This is the United States Atlantic Fleet in 1908. And I've put it up first because the point about what we're going to talk about is 1917 is not just a year in which uh, Soviet communism came to power. It's also a year of enormous geopolitical importance on the world scale, specifically, of course, also for the United States, but also for the rest of the world. I'm just going to start off by going very quickly through some slides to just put you in the mood, as it were, and then we're going to start talking about them. So that is the Great White Fleet. Teddy Roosevelt famously was responsible for building it up. It is the actual visual exemplar of American power um, in the early 20th century, just as America's aircraft carriers are, for most of the world, the great visual exemplar of American power at the moment. And of course, it reminds us, a point that is terribly easy to forget, that America's main contribution in World War I was not as a land power. It was because by that stage, it was the third largest naval power in the world. First largest one was Britain, second largest one was Germany. To be blunt, America coming into the war on the side of Britain decisively shifted or made possible a totally different naval outcome to what might otherwise have occurred. Uh, Wilson, the president who took you in, as you know, these days, a slightly ambiguous figure, his views on racial matters would not be acceptable today but by the standards of the age, a thoughtful president, a president who actually understood, had a vision of where America was in the world, and a president who certainly was of a higher caliber than the men that succeeded him in the 1920s. Um, this is a New York scene from 1917. In New York, of course, you would have been well aware from these massive uh, military uh, send-offs, military demonstrations that the country was at war. Um, as it were, Wilson's by 1918 uh, Russian counterpart. There's Lenin, there's the Bolsheviks, there is the New York Times, and this is where I want to start. It's a modern map, but it captures 
a point that I want to bring out. In 1904, so that's 13 years before our story, as it were, starts, there was one of those few things that occur every so often, a lecture that defined a subject. A man called Mackinder, subsequently a politician, he was in a way the Kissinger of his age. He was an academic that became a politician. Mackinder gave the first great lecture on the subject of geopolitics. And Mackinder's essential thesis was that long-range railways, like the railways that had spanned the American continent, which, of course, in the case of the United States and Canada, uh, we're talking about fewer than 40 years before, and long-range railways like the one then being built, the Trans-Siberian, which would link Europe to the Pacific, that long-range railways had changed the geopolitics of the age. And it's quite a complex lecture. It, you need to read it. It's published. You need to read it with care. But his essential idea was that the world would be dominated by whoever dominated what he termed the world island, and the world island was what he called Eurasia, and that the key, what he called pivot of history, would be the area that we would roughly call East Central Europe, West Asia. In other words, the pivot between Berlin, Moscow, and slightly east of that to the Urals. And he argued that whoever could dominate that would present a challenge to the oceanic states, nations, and peoples, of which he was thinking most, most uh, forcefully of Britain and the United States, and that their geopolitical need and necessity would be that of trying to restrain the power that dominated the world island. Now, in 1904, this appeared to be interesting, but what we would use, it's a term I always find rather, uh, rather disagreeable. People use the term academic to imply that it's not, not something worth thinking about. Actually, um, but in 1904, in 1904, um, Germany was a power that had considerable animosity towards Russia. And the idea that these two powers might be joined in an alliance uh, prefiguring, I suppose, the geopolitical alignment between Russia and China today, or that these two powers might go to war and one might knock out the other, that appeared totally implausible. And if you were a British strategist, or for that matter, an American strategist, you wouldn't really have had to think about that in 1904. And Mackinder appeared more a sort of man living in a thought bubble than anything else. Interestingly enough, from the point of view of that lecture, and to encourage you lot to ask good questions, if you don't ask good questions, they won't let you out until you ask good questions, to encourage you lot, somebody there asked an incredibly good question. The young Leo Amory, another man who subsequently became a very leading politician, the, Amory actually said to Mackinder at the end, um, surely this is all very interesting, um, and he was asking a very senior figure this, and he was only in his early 20s. Surely this is all very interesting, but I've just heard, and literally it had occurred two months earlier, that manned flight has, has begun, and surely aircraft are going to change all this. And Mackinder didn't quite know how to reply to that. But in 1904, this all appeared, as I've said, academic. By 1917, the situation was totally different. World War I 
had begun with all the countries having anticipations as to what they thought was going to happen. And as in most wars, it didn't work out. Nobody succeeded in their 1914 war plans. Uh, the closest any individual power came to success in 1914 was the very minor power of Serbia, which was able to thwart and defeat completely two Austrian invasions of that year. Everybody else, um, France, Russia, Austria, Germany, Britain, their war plans didn't succeed. It had been widely anticipated before the war that the war would lead to very heavy casualties. People had seen the casualty rates in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905, and they knew that modern technology would mean very heavy casualties. But everybody had thought that the war would be over quickly, that one side would be able, through imposing its will and inflicting heavy casualties, to deliver victory. And indeed, that appeared to be a reasonable verdict. You know. Uh, people who are thoughtless learn from history. People who are clever know that history doesn't actually repeat itself in the same pattern. So the notion was that a quick war, the sort of war that the, that the Germans had delivered at the expense of the French in 1870-71, or that the Americans had, had delivered at the expense of the Spaniards in 1898, or that the Japanese had delivered at the expense of the Russians in 1904-05, surely the same thing would happen again. And there was also, I'm afraid to say, a degree of racism here. There was an assumption among a lot of military commentators that if the Japanese could do it, surely Europeans could do it. It's very unattractive, but racist thought was very much stronger in that period and more explicitly advanced than people do do so today. Anyway, 1914, it doesn't work out. What this leads to is the mobilization of societies and states for war, and to a far greater extent than what we are used to today. Um, and in 1915 and 1916, you see really punishing conflict between the major powers. And in 1917, one of the powers comes close, apparently, to victory. The strategic dilemma for Germany had been that it was fighting a two-front war that it was fighting on the West against Britain and France and their empires, and that it was fighting on the Eastern side against Russia. And the dilemma for the Germans is that they had to split their forces and that their allies, Austria, Bulgaria, and Turkey, while not worthless, were only able to contribute so much to the table. And remember, the German experience, the German policy, was to go for a one-front victory. That's what they delivered in 1870-71 against Prussia. That's what they were to deliver again in 1939-1940 against France and Britain in that context. And that's what they had planned for the First World War. They would deliver a one-front victory against France in 1914 by concentrating their forces against the French, whilst the Russians mobilized more slowly. And then they would turn and fight, engage, and defeat the Russians. And it had gone wrong. But in 1917, the German plan came very close to fruition. Uh, Russia, at the beginning of 1917, Russia had had not a good war. Uh, its armies had attacked in 1914. They'd done reasonably well against the Austrians. They had done very badly against the Germans, defeated at Tannenberg and the Missourian Lakes. In 1915, the Germans, in turn, had attacked 
and conquered Russian Poland in 1916. They'd attacked uh, and made significant gains in what we would now call Lithuania, Latvia, and Belarus. Russia was under enormous pressure. Its society was coping far less well with the strains of war than either Britain or France were coping. And its industrial capacity was under enormous pressure. And indeed, the strategic logic for the British and the French in both 1915 and 1916 was in part that of attacking the um, Germans, sorry, attacking the Germans on the Western Front in order to try and take off German pressure on, um, on Russia. Just similarly as Stalin, as you will be aware, pressed for a, the opening of the Second Front in Europe in 1942-1943 in order to take off German pressure on Russia. You've got the same sort of strategic dilemmas in both the world wars. So, it hasn't worked. Russia is tottering. And at the beginning of 1917, the, uh, there is a crisis at the centre, um, really quite a short-term crisis. But whereas in 1905 it had been possible to suppress civil insurrection in St. Petersburg by force, because the government at that stage had not been discredited, because there were units of the armed forces available to do it, and because there was a degree of confidence by the army uh, in the Tsar, the situation at the beginning of 1917 is not similar. And the beginning of 1917, the Kerensky Revolution in uh, Russia, if you like, the first Ru Russian Revolution, not the Bolshevik one, leads to the overthrow of the Tsar with singularly little um, violence. It, is not, it doesn't prefigure the later Bolshevik rising in that respect. The new government uh, pledges itself to go on fighting the Germans. But to put it bluntly, the new government is clearly not up to it. Its military is clearly not up to it. And Western planners are increasingly aware that what to them had seemed an illusory idea, as outlined by Mackinder, namely the possibility of Russia and Germany becoming, as it were, one block uh, as a result of a German dominance of Russian politics, either by conquest or more plausibly by forcing a political solution on the Russians. This appeared increasingly credible to British and French policymakers in 1917, and even started to percolate into some minds on this side of the Atlantic. The, uh, the, um, uh, the Deutschmark went up on the New York uh, money markets, you'll be interested to know. People started investing in German securities in, in New York on the principle that the Germans might well actually win the war, and then it looked increasingly plausible that they would. And I think it's fair to say that the crisis created in 1917 is the crisis that helps to show that the Western European powers on their own are not in a position of dominance. Um, it, uh, this may seem obvious to you. It hadn't been obvious to them earlier or to other commentators. The British Empire was the largest in world history. The French Empire was the second largest in world history. The British were ruling about a fifth of the world's population. Um, the uh, French were bringing in another significant percentage. And both powers also were economically uh, powerful in areas of the world that weren't part of their empire. China, for example, or Argentina, countries like that, which were not part of their empires, nevertheless had enormous economic uh, uh, dominance. And partly that was because 
that oceanic trading systems prior to the war had seemed the absolute dominance. Well, what Mackinder appeared, Mackinder's vision, as it were, appeared plausible in 1917. Now, if the Germans had been clever, they probably wouldn't have begun unrestricted submarine warfare again in the Atlantic in 1917, because obviously that was the uh, factor that led America into the war. I was rather interested, there was a piece in the New York Times um, on Thursday arguing that America's entry into the war was a mistake. Well, what it rather ignored the fact was that the Americans had said that if their ships were sunk in the Atlantic, they would regard that as a causus belli, and that the, you know, the Germans sinking it was not exactly what going to keep the Americans neutral. It's rather like you sometimes get Americans saying, um, you, know, um, you know, if only we hadn't gone into World War II, uh, forgetting the fact that it was actually Germany that declared war on America in World War II, not America declaring war on Germany. Um, so you've got to actually try and get this in context. Um, why was it that the Germans decided to open again unrestricted submarine warfare? Partly because they thought they were winning and it didn't matter what the Americans did, which was very much Hitler's approach in December 1941. He thought he was winning. It didn't actually matter uh, if the Americans came into the war. Uh, that was part of the reason. But part of the reason also was that the Germans had, as it were, made a cardinal mistake. And of course, the, we in our wise age today would never make this mistake of assuming that strategy is ultimately military, when in fact, strategy is ultimately political. It is an attempt to impose your will on others. Force can be very useful to that. But if you don't get the other side to respond as you want them to respond, then force doesn't necessarily deliver the verdict you want. Now, the, this was the great mistake the German policymakers were making by 1917. It's the mistake they had made throughout, and it's the mistake they were to repeat in World War II. The assumption that another side would accept the verdict of whatever military, um, uh, uh, military force they could deliver and would then actually leave the war on their terms. So it hadn't worked yet. After all, in 1914, 15, 16, and 17, they had managed to conquer large parts of their neighbor's territory. Germany had lost no territory at all, and yet their opponents went on fighting. Uh, and the Germans never offered. Again, this very foolish piece in the New York Times ignores the fact that there had been attempts to negotiate a peace in World War I. The Pope, for example, had tried to negotiate a peace, arguing that Catholic countries like France and Austria shouldn't be on opposite sides. And the Germans had simply said, yeah, we're happy to have peace. We have to be able to hold on to the territories we've already conquered, which was, of course, not the basis of, of getting a negotiated settlement. So the Germans in 1917 begin unrestricted submarine warfare again. They'd begun it in 1915, as you may recall, sinking quite a lot of ships in the Atlantic, including the Lusitania. The American government had told them that unless they stopped unrestricted submarine warfare, America would enter the war against them. Again, something that the person in the New York Times completely ignored. Uh, I don't want to labor the point, but it is scandalous to see a major newspaper offering such error. I'm really, I was absolutely shocked uh, to see it being, and if anybody here is anything to do with the New York Times, they, sure to be, they ought to be ashamed of producing such twaddle. Um, but the, the, um, the, the American government had told them that if uh, they didn't stop unrestricted submarine warfare, America would come into the war. And why was that? 
It was the same reason America had gone to war with Britain in 1812, because America was a trading state. It was a great maritime state. Um, whereas today, a lot of Americans have, as it were, turned their back on the oceans. And you know, if you go to the uh, middle states, you will often hear pejorative remarks about the coasts and such like. No American would have dreamt of saying that in the 19-teens. The powerhouses of America, economically, financially, culturally, and intellectually, were the coastal states. And it was absolutely crucial to these states that trade continued, and that, for example, if you were shipping a cargo from one neutral port, New York, to another neutral port, let us say in Venezuela, you didn't have to worry about some German submarine sinking it. Um, just as in 1812, the Americans perfectly reasonably had taken the view that they didn't want the British interrupting their trade just because the British were at war with France. So that's one aspect of it. Incidentally, there were other aspects. The Germans began uh, bombing, not by Zeppelins, they'd already done that, but bombing by conventional bombers of London for essentially, for essentially the same reasons. They very much moved the war into overdrive. They were winning. As far as they were concerned, they were winning. And in 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution, which came later in the year, and which is generally looked at by people in domestic terms, you know, um, in terms of uh, what was unattractive about the Tsarist regime, the key importance for the rest of the world was not that. The key importance is that the Bolsheviks took, and I use the term Bolsheviks because there are other communists who were not Bolsheviks, the Bolsheviks took... Russia out of the war. They took Russia out of the war by the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk with Germany, in which they agreed that the Germans should occupy large tracts of Western Russia as part of a peace settlement, and that the Germans should be able to take large quantities of economic resource. And this is crucial, because what it meant is that the long war strategy of the British, which was essentially to blockade Germany, to cut Germany off from the oceans, was failing. Because now the Germans were going to be able to get the grain from Ukraine, they were going to be able to get the coal from the Donbass. It didn't really matter what happened in the blockade. And again, this is very much prefigures what happens in World War II. It prefigures the Nazi-Soviet Pact of 1939 to 1941, when again, Hitler benefited enormously from the fact that the communists were supplying, Soviet Union was supplying Germany with enormous quantities of material, and therefore it didn't matter that the British and the French were blockading Germany. So by the end of 1917, it appears very apparent what is going to happen in this war. Germany has won. It has taken out, it has moved from a two-front war to a one-front war, which is exactly what it wants. It is going to be able to move its troops from the Eastern Front to the Western Front, and it is going to be able to take out its Western opponents. The Germans had already conquered 90% of Romania. They'd conquered Serbia. Uh, in 1917, in the Caporetto Offensive, the Germans and the Austrians uh, really smashed up the Italian army and pushed the Italians back. It was clearly going to be the British and French term in 1918. And the interesting thing is how Wilson saw this. Wilson had no love for the British or the French. 
He argued that American power in the long term was going to require the subordination of their empires, essentially the same view that FDR had in the, in the 1940s. But he also understood that there was a challenge here to America's interests. And again, prefiguring World War II, tends to be forgotten in World War II. There's a very good book by the American scholar Norm Gowder, who's at the University of Florida here, on the war planning of the German naval staff in 1939, 1940, 1941. And the German naval staff had, were building up on their pre-war plans. Hitler had told them war with America wouldn't come until 1948. Uh, they had started to lay down their first aircraft carrier. Uh, they were building up uh, to take over the Spanish and Portuguese bases in the Atlantic, the Canaries, the Azores, and Madeira, and from that to wage an oceanic war against the United States. And of course, and this is what really worried Roosevelt, already the French Navy, which was one of the largest navies in the war, was out of the equation with the fall of France in 1940. If the British Navy went out of the equation as well, then the Americans would be in a highly exposed position, uh, not only vis-a-vis -vis the Germans, but vis-a-vis -vis the fact that the Germans were allied with Japan and Italy, each of which had significant navies. So in other words, for the United States, 1917-1918 is a trial run of the crisis that faces it in 1940-1941. And just as in 1940-1941, Roosevelt had to think seriously about what it meant in terms of how best to defend America, one of the most interesting things about that is if you go to Fort Monroe near on the entrance to the Chesapeake, they've got a really good map there of the railway guns the Americans installed in 1940 and 41, the largest artillery pieces ever installed in the uh, New World. These pieces were designed to engage the Bismarck offshore. The Americans were very worried that, in fact, what was to happen at Pearl Harbor would come, but in a very different way. They were worried that a German fleet would cross the Atlantic and attack the American Atlantic Fleet's base at Norfolk. And they put in these enormous guns, which were designed to fire over 20 miles out to sea to engage against uh, the big German uh, battleships, particularly the Bismarck. Um, so in other words, that kind of strategic dilemma is present in 1917 to 1918. Is that easy for, to explain to the public? No, not really. Um, publics don't, on the whole, like to worry about international relations if it might mean something awful might be going to happen. Um, and you can understand that. Um, I mean, it's much less of a problem for us than for our predecessors. Remember, our predecessors, certainly the males, had to run the risk of losing their lives because you were talking about conscription. Uh, these days, conscription isn't a political option, uh, but these were societies that knew that if you were going to go to war in this fashion, you had to take um, your civilian population with, them, uh, with you, otherwise you couldn't run a conscript war. But interestingly enough, 
And this is where I think the German re resumption of, in, of uh, unrestricted submarine warfare really affected American public opinion. Sinking passenger ships and other ships with civilians in them, sending them to the bottom of the Atlantic, most people died because essentially the torpedo would go in, explode the engine, and it doesn't, you know, you're not going to get time to get off a ship when the, ex when the engine's been blown up. Um, this was really the atrocity literature of the age, and it was actually happening. It was true and accurate atrocity literature. So this, I think, is an important part. Now, where does this take America forward? America comes into the war, and that is very important to creating a new geopolitical context for 1917 and 18. The naval entry is particularly important. Uh, the Americans send six battleships to Scarpa Flow, the main British um, uh, uh, naval base, uh, to control any attempt, German attempt to break out into the North Sea and break into the Atlantic. And of course, the Germans had already tried this in 1916. Those six battleships absolutely are important in swaying the numerical balance. They send other warships to the Mediterranean and they take over a lot of the escort duty in the Atlantic. Part of that, of course, also means that the Americans are able to deploy their troops to Europe with no more than three uh, troop transports being torpedoed by German submarines. And of those, one got into Brest anyway. It was damaged, but it got into the main French harbour at Brest. I think it, they lost 640 troops. So to the loss of 640 men out of over a million and a half transported to across to Europe must rank as a strategic success and it also shows how stupid the German naval minister was who told the Reichstag that, in fact, it didn't matter America coming into the war because German submarines would stop any American army crossing the Atlantic. And it showed also how the, Navy, the German Navy had given their um, civilian politicians very deeply flawed advice. That's being polite. Um, so... America brings in about a million and a half men onto the Western Front. They would have been absolutely crucial had the war gone on into 1919. They were important in 1918, but a lot of them weren't yet engaged. They would have been really important in 1919. And I don't think there's any doubt that they're one of the factors that encourage Hindenburg and Ludendorff, uh, by, who realize by October 1918 that it hasn't worked out. They encourage them to tell the civilian politicians, it's time to end the war. Briefly, what had happened in 1918 is the Germans had delivered a series of hammer blows, the spring offensives on the Western Front against both the British and the French. They'd pushed them back heavily, but in one of the more important battles in history, as it were, and it's a protracted battle, they hadn't actually defeated them. Uh, the British government had produced plans, which they hadn't told the French about, to blow up every single French port on the grounds that this would make it harder for if the Germans had conquered France to then go on to invade Britain. Um, but it hadn't proved necessary to do so. Um, and I think this is a very interesting moment. 1918 is a very interesting moment because the British and the French, and with powerful American units in the Meuse-Argonne offensive, defeat the German army on the Western Front. 
I'm, I labour that point because it's a military achievement which we ought to be uh, commemorating next year. Many Americans died, uh, as well as obviously a large number of British and French. And why it's important is the defeat of Germany in 1918 in military terms, we'll come to the politics in, the, in a second, is an enormous achievement. Remember, in 1944-45, other brave men and women lost their lives, but fundamentally, that wasn't what knocked Germany out of the war. Uh, what knocked Germany out of the war in 1944-45 was the ability of the Red Army to smash it. More than two-thirds of the Wehrmacht divisions were on the Eastern Front at every stage. If you'd had the main German battle army in Western Europe, there is absolutely no way that D-Day could have happened. They just simply would not have had the equations of manpower. And the war in Europe would have ended as the Allies originally intended it should end in those circumstances with the dropping of the first atom bomb on Berlin. Not necessarily a terrible thing. It had to be dropped somewhere, if you would say. But, well, I'm, you know, if you're going to end and if you're going to end a other system short of actually having to kill everybody there. You know, it's not about, you know, I mean, I've just been to Japan, most intelligent Japanese, we're not talking about um, the, uh, the political froth, most intelligent Japanese realize that the ending of the dropping of the atom bombs brought the war to, with Japan to an end without the appalling casualties which would have come from a ground war all the way through Japan. So, you know, you have, in war, you have to think of the balance of casualties here. So it would have been a terrible episode to drop an atom bomb on, on Berlin, but ultimately, if it had killed Hitler, if it had decapitated the regime, if it had led to the end of the war, that's what it would have taken to end it, and that's the kind of thing strategists have to think about, okay? So, the, going back to 1918, in 1918, the achievement is totally different. The Allies actually, in the so-called 100 Days Offensive in August and September and into October 1918, defeat the main German battle army on the Western Front. They breach its prepared defences, the Hindenburg Line, and they are astonishingly successful at pushing the Germans back. Um, and that, I think, as I said, is something we don't talk about. Now, what we do talk about is what happened thereafter. As you know, Wilson, who we saw up there, Wilson and Lenin had two, uh, they, were, they were in a sense comparable in, in, in a number of respects. One of their respects was they wanted to totally reconceptualize international relations. Lenin wanted to reconceptualize international relations around the idea that you wanted an alliance of the peoples of the world against the defunct elites, and that you should have an international communist revolution. And Lenin's idea, of course, was that the revolution, once it had begun, should spread. Remember, Karl Marx had not thought that Russia was the obvious seedbed of revolution. He had thought that the Russian population were excessively religious and too much agrarian, that there wasn't a large enough industrial proletariat. As far as Marx was concerned, the obvious countries for revolution were his home country, Germany, and his adopted country, Britain. And that's where he thought revolution should be. And that actually goes through into communist thought 
Um, from the outset, the idea is this revolution should be exported. And indeed, in 1919, revolution happens in one other country, takes over briefly, Hungary under Bela Kuhn. And there's attempts to do the same thing in Germany, of course, with the Spartacists. This is the idea and wh why Lenin invades Poland in 1920 uh, is in part in order to make it possible to spread revolution westwards and particularly into Germany. So in some respects, Lenin wants totally to reconceptualize international relations in a way which has a direct antecedence to what we have seen in international relations since, which is the notion of ideological bases of international movements, which tend to argue that they should be of worldwide scope. And you know, we, you don't need me to talk to you about the present world, but you still see ideologies of that type, some of them of an extraordinarily violent and vicious type. Wilson also, not the same ideology of course, but Wilson also felt that the existing nature of international relations was redundant. Wilson took the view that it was redundant in two ways. One, he argued that imperial rule was redundant, that what it meant was suppressing the destinies, as he saw it, of peoples, the idea of what he called national self-determination, and he believed that America's entry into the war and America's participation in the war and in the subsequent peace conference represented an, an opportunity to dismantle uh, existing empires or to encourage the dismantlement of existing empires in order to create a whole uh, sort of spread around the world of independent democratic states. States that, of course, would look for their inspiration and their economic links to the United States. That was one of Wilson's big ideas. And if you like, it's a big idea that you are to see repeatedly in American policy uh, discussion, not always in policy making, but in American policy discussion since. And if you want to think of it in historical terms, it represents an attempt to do what had not been possible in the late 18th and early 19th century, which is to take the potential of the American Declaration of Independence, which, as you will recall, as written by Jefferson, is a declaration which claims to lay down values for all mankind and actually to make it a prospectus for all mankind. So it was an ambitious idea. It was an ideological idea. It's a very different idea to Lenin's, but it was similarly global in its scope. Wilson also, again like Lenin, though in a very different context, argued that the pre-existing system of diplomacy was wrong. That the pre-existing system of diplomacy, of what uh, the Soviets called secret diplomacy or the diplomacy of courts and cabinets had meant that the true interests of people had been ignored, but also that powers malignly had sought to use war to pursue their interests. And Wilson, in a, if you wish to be critical, a utopian fashion, if you wish to be positive, in a fashion determined not to try and repeat the horrors that people had just seen in World War I, argued that there ought to be possible to create and construct an international system that made it conceivable that you could have um, an international uh, regulation of conflicts without war. 
So in other words, perfectly reasonable for people to disagree with each other, perfectly reasonable for them to shout and scream at each other, but not to go for a war. And if war did break out, that there should be means of trying to regulate its extent and limit its impact. So in a way, what the First World War does is bring to fruition ideas that have already existed. The communist idea has already existed. Karl Marx, of course, is writing in the mid uh, 19th century. The American ideas, in many sense, reflect bringing the uh, notions of the Constitution, bringing the notions of the uh, Declaration of Independence to a kind of international scale. Those notions are both much more in play by the end of the 19-teens, and they are also more in play because the existing political powers are, to put it mildly, in trouble. The German Empire collapses in 1918. The Russian Empire collapses in 1917. The Austro-Hungarian Empire collapses in 1918. The Ottoman Empire collapses in 1918. Yes, Britain and France as imperial powers gain yet more territories. But to put it mildly, they are under enormous pressure by this point. Um, and Britain itself, in attempting um, to resist um, Irish separatism fails and Ireland or the Republic of Ireland or what becomes the Republic of Ireland becomes independent in 1922 and the British Empire is under a lot of pressure by the early 20s and the French Empire also. They limp on uh, partly because of obviously what happens, which is the failure of Lenin and, in fact, paradoxically, the failure of, of Wilson as well. But what you've got by the early 20s is the defining ideas that are going to play a role in thinking about international relations in the uh, 20th century in play. And much of that debate occurs in the United States because against Wilson's ideas, there are other politicians, in the Senate in particular, who say this is utopian, this is foolish, that you cannot have a prospectus for a kind of world empire. They are particularly pejorative about the League of Nations, but the League of Nations is just an expression of Wilson's uh, deeper set of views and beliefs, and those set of views and beliefs do not capture the enthusiasm of a lot of Senate. And of course, in the 1920s, linked to that, you get a kind of reaction against the Wilsonian policies, particularly with the passage of new immigration acts in the United States, uh, 1924, for example, you get the demise of progressivism, which has been, um, as it were, contaminated, if you like, by people slurring it with the idea that it's a form of Bolshevism. And you get American political society moving in the 20s rightwards towards a more isolationist, a more anti-progressivist approach. So interestingly enough, that crisis of the late teens, early 20s, not just produces a new prospectus of America's role in the world, but also produces a reaction to it. I think it's fair to say that the debate in the Soviet Union is considerably more abrupt. Uh, Lenin has the basis of a secret police. Uh, there's, you know, a long-standing view which, of course, uh, sort of silly people thought in the 60s that Lenin was fundamentally nice and that Stalin was fundamentally vicious and the revolution would have been okay if only Lenin had, had as it were, had a different successor. Complete rubbish. 
Uh, Lenin gave all sorts of instructions for what we would consider mass murder to the Cheka, uh, the secret police. He encouraged notions of what he called people's justice, which were to be every bit as brutal, though not quite as big a scale as that seen under both Stalin and Mao Zedong. And the kind of notion of communism, which fundamentally is that the people are right, and therefore if you disagree, you're obviously an enemy of the people, and if you're an enemy of the people, you are a threat to the people and you shouldn't exist. That actually is all present and correct in, in uh, Soviet policy by 1919. So again, one of the elements of the 20th century, one of the elements of the modern world, which is totalitarianism brought to fruition, is present already by the end of the 19-teens. And it's rather interesting here. If you had sat there in 1913, you already have a lot of the technology of modernity. You already have aircraft. You already have long-distance radio. You are in a world that is totally different. An 80-year-old person in 1913 is living in a world that is totally different to the world of their parents, totally different to the world of their childhood in terms of technology, in terms of the material nature of life. But in ideological terms, actually government across most of the world is small government. The idea of the mobilization of the resources of society to pursue policy is very much one that comes in as a result of the war. It is the fact that the war has lasted so long, which forces societies that have never known conscription, like Britain, to introduce society, uh, to introduce conscription. It leads to rises in things like income tax, interest rates. It leads to different attitudes to women, because of course in Britain you suddenly push large numbers of women into the workforce if you're going to have conscription. It produces a much less deferential, a hierarchical, a more modern society. Some aspects of that modern society we like, some aspects we dislike. Uh, we will all have our own personal views on the matter. But the key element was that people understood that you weren't going to go back to the past. The disruptive element is acute, and the political changes at the end make it even more acute. Now, the one society, of course, in which there is a powerful movement for going back to the past is paradoxically the society that is profiting most from embracing the future economically in the 1920s, and that's the United States. You have this very curious system in the United States in the 1920s. Economically, it's the most uh, dominant power in the world. New York is the world city in the 1920s and 30s, a city that fascinates contemporaries. Um, but at the same time, if you look at 1920s politics, if you look at the world of Coolidge and Harding, you are looking at a world that would have been comfortably there in the assumptions of the 1870s and 1880s. And this, this is, in a sense, another aspect of modernity, the way in which within the United States, and you are still, and all of you will have different views, and it's not my job to, as it were, comment on it, um, but you will all have different views. It is this astonishing matter of a conservative society in its political terms, looking back to a constitution of the late 18th century and to the divided government concepts that Montesquieu had really offered in the Enlightenment terms. Nothing wrong with that, nothing right with that. It's just the values of an age. And that society still operating as a global power economically and politically. So what happened, of course, is that in the 1920s, 
the United States essentially embraced the economic aspect of it, but not the political aspect. And that worked quite well for America in the 20s. I mean, up to a point, I mean, obviously one of the great problems is that the Americans, as a boom economy, were exporting goods and exporting capital, and therefore they were dependent on the stability of other parts of the world. I mean, one of the things that happened in the 1930s, shock horror, is other people start, uh, as it were, uh, closing, foreclosing on their debts and not taking your exports. And in a way, for the Americans, this synergy between economic expansion, economic growth, and political interest is one that was better understood at the end of the Second World War rather than being understood at the end of the First World War. If you're looking elsewhere in terms of modernity, I think it's, if you're looking elsewhere in terms of modernity, I think in the case of the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union found that state-directed change didn't work. Um, you could put force in as a component, you could put central direction in as a component, and you could go on turning that out in great quantities. And the Chinese were to do that. The Pol Pot regime in Cambodia was to go into overdrive, killing everybody that it didn't like. Um, but ultimately, that did not deliver either the society they wanted or the economic growth that they wanted. So what you've got in the 20th century is different models of statehood, some working in the long term better than others, but all of them owing their fruition to the events of the late 19-teens and early 1920s. Now, what I would suggest to you is that what people tend to need to have to remember is that it was a particular set of international circumstances and how those played through, how those affected policymakers, and how those influenced the public debate, because it is worth bearing in mind that it was Congress ultimately that decided to vote for war uh, with Germany in 1917, just as Congress ultimately voted for war in Britain in, with Britain in 1812. Ultimately, it required more than a very small number of individuals around the president to make the decision. But in practical terms, what this did was create a new set of parameters for the United States. Those parameters have never been easy. It never is. It's always nicer to pretend that we live in a different world. I personally quite like reading political thought that's on the level of Thomas the Tank Engine and Winnie the Pooh. But alas, <laughs> but alas, alas, it doesn't really help you in an adversarial world. So. One of the interesting things about circumstances like this, about occasions such as the lecture series that you have here, about activities such as the Foreign Policy Research Institute, is to encourage, as Alan said, um, uh, you know, and to encourage this notion that you are an active citizenry. That has always been an aspect of American society. It was an aspect that ultimately led a lot of Americans to reject rule from London and George III uh, in 1775, 1776. It's an aspect that is still important, but it carries with it responsibilities. And one of, responsibilities to yourself. I'm not talking about responsibilities to the rest of the world. And one of those responsibilities to yourself is to think carefully. 
you are running the world's largest military power and that you have an enormous potential for good and harm, not just to others, but also to yourselves in terms of the development of your society. And you need an informed public debate, a debate aware of the fact, as people should have been more so in the late teens and early 20s, that there is generally merit on more than one side of the political spectrum, but that you also need to try and convince people to move forward to some sort of agreed solution in terms of an understood national interest. That is an exciting time in your history. Rather than bewailing it, which is all too easy to do, try and take some of the responsibility into your own hands. Thank you. Well, let's start. Um, gosh, how important was the Zimmerman memo in getting us, by which I take it you mean the United States, uh, <laughs> into, into the First World War? Um, the Germans, just to recall, just to recap, um, the Germans had been intrigued. The Germans were worried America might come into the war. They thought that actually uh, resuming unrestricted submarine warfare would, would possibly or probably lead America in. So they had to decide how to respond. And submarines is one way to respond. But talking to Mexican politicians about the possibility that the tensions between the United States and Mexico, and remember, American troops took the view again, very, sorry, American governments took the view, again, very modern, that if there was uh, violence in Mexico, and Mexico itself was in revolution, and this spilled over into bordering uh, American cities and settlements, that the Americans should, as it were, deliver military force, and not all the Mexicans liked that. Um, so the Germans encouraged talk about this, um, a telegram about, uh, a, you know, discussing the possibility of Germany being willing to concede um, the regaining by Mexico of territories lost in the 1846-48 war um, was uh, intercepted and deciphered. Let's put it like this. It didn't improve relations between <laughs> Germany. Uh, but I think the key element was, the key element was the maritime one. I think the key element was because ultimately the American government had given, if you like to use a modern term, a red line. They didn't use the term red line, but they had given a red line about unrestricted submarine warfare. And of course, this was a serious point. There's not much point throwing up slides of the Great White Fleet if the Great White Fleet is going to be sent to the bottom of the ocean by some errant uh, uh, torpedoes. Um, so for the United States, this was important, very important. Um, what I would add, for those of you interested in parallels with World War II, is as you may know, one of the factors that unsettled American policymakers in the late 30s and early 40s was the development of German influence in Latin America. Both the fact that many Latin American dictators looked to the Germans for the provision of... Um, uh, military assistance, military training, that many of them were neo-fascists, some of them like Peron, active anti-Semites. Um, what the dictators generally disagreed about is whether they should look to Germany, as Peron did, or to Italy, as Vargas did in Brazil, for example. Um, so what you've got, and you know, the American government gets very worried about the development of 
um, Lufthansa Air Services in South America. They get very worried about what they see as growing German uh, economic and military influence there. So this is a perpetual issue for the United States geostrategically. And in hindsight, the 19th century had been singularly benign for America in that respect. The Americans had not really had to worry what was going on in Latin America. And they'd been able, at very, very, very modest political cost, to actually get significant economic benefit from selling um, manufactured goods and from buying primary products. From World War I onwards, it's always a problem for the Americans. They're worried either about the Germans or they're worried about um, the communists, and you know, as, as, uh, you don't need me to tell you about their anxieties. Uh, but even before Cuba and all the rest of it, I mean, American pop, the Marines were sent into places like Nicaragua in the 1920s precisely because of anxiety about left-wing populist governments there. So that was a geopolitical shift. Could I please talk about the influence Admiral Mahan had on World War One and beyond. Just to remind you, uh, Mahan is the great American theorist of naval power. Uh, Mahan, um, it's quite interesting here. Mahan had been naval officer. He lectured at West Point. He's another, as it were, um, academic, but in a sense, an academic in the military. Um, and he produces a very influential work on the influence on sea power on history. He produces other books as well. But the influence of sea power on history, 1890, it comes out. Very influential in the United States. He was a chum of Teddy Roosevelt's. Also translated into German, where the Kaiser read it, and translated into Japanese. It was a very, very influential work on uh, geopolitics and on military thought. Mahan's essential argument, um, and in a way it's the precursor of Mackinder, is that the nature of great power rests on naval power, and that in naval power what you need is the big ship. Um, there'd been a reaction against the battleship in the 1870s and 1880s, particularly in France, with the argument that the battleship has become redundant because of the development of torpedoes. And Mahan argues, no, that the battleship can still deliver lethality like nothing else, that you can develop um, escort vessels to keep away the destroyers that are going to bring torpedoes. Initially, torpedoes were a surface weapon, not a subsurface weapon. Um, and he argues that America could, could and should be the great power as the result of its naval strength, and that to do so, to foster its trade, it needs to develop its navy. Mahan was also an Anglophile. He argued that there should be a kind of condominium of the world between the United States um, and Britain, but with the United States playing a major role. And so it's Mahanian ideas that lead the Americans, for example, to take over from the French the Panama Canal. It's Mahanian ideas that lead the Americans to develop naval bases uh, in the Caribbean and facing into the Caribbean. It leads them to buy the Danish Virgin Islands in 1917. It encourages them in the Samoa crisis in the 1890s. It encourages the Great White Fleet. Um, and Mahan ideas are very important. They're also linked to major American industrial and political views. There's nothing wrong with this. This is also true 
anywhere in any state. So just as American ideas after World War II about aerospace and aircraft are very much linked to Californian industrial and political views, Mahanian, Mahanian views were very much linked to the coal and steel constituency of great industrialists on the East Coast, very influential in Philadelphia. In fact, in the 1890s, there's a marvelous article by the American scholar Ed Rhodes on the politics of the Mahanian buildup. And what essentially you've got is East Coast industrial and political interests saying, our prosperity fundamentally rests on oceanic trade. If we can't export, we're dead as a country. You know, we don't want nativism. It's not going to work. Um, and therefore, you know, what they're saying is we need a great navy. And that idea became tremendously important in the United States. And interestingly enough, although the Americans become isolationist in the 1920s, they still retain an enormous navy and go on developing it. Uh, America, Britain, and Japan are the three great naval powers of the 1920s and 30s. Then the Germans start to build up a navy. Under the Washington Naval Treaty of 1922-1923, which I recommend very strongly, uh, the book by the Newport scholar uh, John Maurer, essentially... Britain and America agreed on having the same amount of naval strength with Japan to be a ratio below that, and then France and Italy ratios below that. And the Americans embrace uh, aircraft carriers as a new technology. By 1924, they're actively planning uh, war with Japan, and they're debating the best way to fight Japan. So the Americans are aware that even if you want the world to go away, the world isn't necessarily going to go away. So the military is much more engaged in what are known as the rainbow plans, color-coordinated plans for war with particular powers, which are developed in the 20s and 30s. They don't, in other words, the military doesn't buy into isolationism at all. Uh, that's that. Um, why did the Allies not enter Germany in 1918? If they had, what impact would it have had on the outcome? That, again, is an interesting and very important question. The Allies didn't think the war was going to end in 1918. You must remember, most people find that wars start as a matter of surprise. They often end at a matter of surprise. Uh, they had been beating the Germans, but the Germans were still, you know, still had a lot of territory to conquer, and there was still a lot of German troops. The general Allied assumption is that it was going to take one more campaigning season to win. That campaigning season would be the 1919 campaign, and plans were very divided. I mean, JFC Fuller famously de developed a plan for large-scale tank attacks. The tanks have appeared weren't up to it, but shows how new ideas are developing. The assumption was that in 1919, there'd be the full use of the American forces and that the Germans would be delivered beyond, de uh, driven beyond the Rhine. Well, of course, the Germans asked for an armistice to the surprise of everybody, and the armistice idea was accepted. And they found themselves negotiating peace before they had actually, as it were, delivered conquest. Worth bearing in mind, I mean, you, the gentleman or lady who asked that question, it's worth bearing in mind the Allies did go into Germany, but as part of the peace. The Allies had occupation zones which extended to the Rhine and then 25 miles beyond at Rhine bridgeheads, such as Cologne. So, and these, these occupation zones lasted till 1930. Um, uh, so, in other words, you know, uh, longer, for example, than the occupation of um, 
Austria after World War II or of Japan after World War II. The occupations, so what they meant is when you had the big strikes in the Ruhr in 1924-25, those strikes were against French and Belgium occupation forces. So the question I would put slightly is to rephrase it, which is why is it that the peace wasn't more arduous? Um, the, um, again, one of these rather foolish remarks in this article I was referring to, so, well, you know, it's foolish, and you might have read it, and it's my job to try, and, it's my job as a senior academic to tell you when people are making mistakes. Um, the argument made, the canard, that, um, that Hitler is essentially the fault of the harsh peace trip uh, settlement uh, visited on Germany. The peace settlement visited on Germany in 1919 was far less harsh than the peace settlement visited on Germany in 1945. And the logic of the argument that, the, that Versailles leads to Hitler is that 1945, Yalta and Potsdam should have led to Hitler times two. It's a ludicrous argument. Um, what actually happened is that in 1919, they did not do what some French commentators, like General Foch, who was the Generalissimo of the Allied armies, had proposed, which is create a number of German states. Remember, Germany had only been united in 1870-71, so it's only been united for less than half a century. Foch argued that they ought to rein, reintroduce a, you know, Bavarian independence, they ought to uh, have a separate state for the Rhineland, and that that would ensure that Germany was not be too strong. Famously, as you may remember, Foch's view was turned down, and Foch then predicted war in 20 years' time, because the problem was that demographically, Germany was the largest state um, in Europe, and, you know, uh, if that state chose to be angry and in an age of conscript armies, it had the, an enormous capacity for harm. So I would say, actually, that probably, um, you know, it's very difficult to be predictive, but probably a different peace settlement in 1919, could it have been maintained, which is another question, might well have led to a very different outcome. The problem was that they essentially um, didn't treat Germany as it deserved to be treated. Germany had started World War I, um, and they didn't really treat it, uh, they didn't really, um, as it were, reduce its capacity for harm, whereas, of course, the Cold War very much reduced its capacity for harm because it was in the front line of two rival military systems. Um, Right. What was Germany's role in fomenting the Russian Revolution, sending in Lenin? Uh, yes, the Germans definitely believed in trying to use um, what we would call the black arts in order to cause trouble for their opponents. So the Germans, as you know, famously sent Lenin in a cloak. Lenin was in exile in Switzerland. There was no way for him to get back. Uh, to Russia, they famously put him in a closed railway train and sent him off to St. Petersburg. Um, they also, this was part and parcel of general German policy. So, for example, the Germans provided uh, arms and money uh, for the Irish rising in 1916 against the British, uh, and the Germans tried to create, um, with their Turkish allies, a holy war, a jihad, the caliph under German encouragement declared a holy war against the British and the French empires in order to try and turn uh, Muslims against, uh, against the war effort. So, yeah, the Germans made a major effort in that respect. Um, right. 
Did the Germans ever seriously consider consolidating their victory in Russia and not attacking in France in 1918, keeping their gains? Uh, no, they didn't. Um, you could say, I mean, you know, that uh, there were always possibilities for them uh, to offer peace terms, but they didn't use the uh, Russian Revolution as an opportunity to offer different peace terms. Had they done so, it would have been a very interesting situation because Germany would have ended up as absolutely dominant in uh, Eastern Europe. And, uh, you know, that would have been potentially a militarized state uh, by 1917, 1918. The Kaiser had been pushed to one side and the German general staff was running it. And as you know, Ludendorff, after the war, is one of the great patrons of Hitler. These were not moderate men. And the idea of a Germany of that type being a dominant power is not a particularly attractive. Um, how neutral do you think the US was before 1917? Didn't they not object to the British blockade, among other things? Yes, I think you could fairly say. I mean, this was Hitler's argument in December 1941. Hitler's argument in December 1941 is, is that the Americans are already on the other side anyway, um, and therefore it doesn't hurt making them formally our, our enemies. The practice was that the Americans were open to business with the world during World War I, but because there was a British blockade in Germany and because the American fleet was not going to try and stop that blockade, what that actually meant is the Americans were making vast profits selling munitions uh, to the British and the French. I mean, most French shells, for example, were manufactured in the United States. Vast profits came in, and you could take that argument. But there's a big difference between selling people something and actually fighting uh, on the same side of them. But, you know, that's a reasonable, a reasonable uh, question. Why do you believe the new mobility of railroads, tanks, and aircraft could not avoid the longest period in trench warfare in history? Again, an interesting question. Um, two separate questions there. Why does the World, World War I last as it did, and why does it take the form that it did? First of all, you've got, with the exception of the United States, in 1914, the leading economies of the world all go to war with each other. They are resource rich, they have enjoyed enormous demographic population growth, and they're running systems of conscription. So they're well able to, um, uh, to fight. And of course, they're fighting, particularly if you're looking at the Western Front, in a relatively narrow space. Uh, so you have great concentrations of manpower. Now, if you're looking at how they're fighting, the initial fighting was in the field. In other words, armies moving around. And in fact, the first six months of the war and the last six months of the war is when the casualty rates are highest. The point about digging trenches is trenches are designed to lessen the death rate. Because obviously, if somebody, if you're in the open air and uh, people are firing at you with rapid firing uh, artillery pieces or with machine guns, you're going to take very heavy casualties. You entrench in order to reduce your casualties. The problem is that having entrenched, it then becomes very difficult to restore mobility to warfare. And essentially what you get is several years of trying to work out how to do it. Now, what's interesting is the way in which military historians' interpretations of this have changed. Uh, and can I just add, leaving that, just I'll come to that in a second, a general point. There is a tradition of sort of trashing the world, world War I. 
worth bearing in mind, World War I delivers a, a decisive military victory quicker than World War II does. So just a point there. But if, you, um, if you're looking at World War I, the old-fashioned view, and what I call the History Channel view, because obviously um, is, to, is boys and toys. In other words, so the new, the new toys on the block are aircraft and tanks, and that gives you victory. Actually, um, air, the potential of aircraft are not really brought through into what, until World War II, and the tanks of 1918 are primitive vehicles. They break down easily. They're very slow moving, and like any weapon, they're vulnerable to what you call the what I call the anti-weapon. In this case, the anti-tank gun. Um, no, what really makes the decisive difference in 1917-1918 is first of all the um, the German technique in 1917. The stormtrooper elite attack technique of moving away from large block formations moving forward, having very small units moving forward in rushes. Those pr that proves astonishingly successful at Caporetto, uh, at the Riga offensive. And then in 1918, the deep battle, three-dimensional warfare that the British bring in. Uh, the British essentially use air power in the basis of aerial reconnaissance. They produce these astonishing maps um, in which you can uh, know exactly where your opponents are. And what they do is they absolutely open up the battlefield with very heavy artillery and, and what is known as deep battle. In other words, firing long ways into destroying the other side's rear formations as well. And that's what's decisive in the 100 days offensive. So um, I would say that, you know, they, you know, there's lots of mistakes and people concentrate on the mistakes. People always concentrate on the mistakes in war. That's the nature of things. War is a learning curve. One of the reasons you should be very careful about getting involved in war is it's a learning curve because it takes a while to sort out the bad weapons, the bad ideas, and the bad leaders. Um, but uh, ultimately, it's a learning curve which you have to engage in if you want to win, and that did deliver the results uh, by the end. Um, do you feel that time and value is understood in the 20th century Western economics compromise long-term strategy formation in comparison to that of authoritarian regimes? Um, <laughs> wow. That's my starter for 10. Um, um, well, I assume what that means in part is an argument that Western societies are short-termist. I assume that that's what that means by time and value, and that authoritarian regimes have a capacity to think for the long term. Yes and no. Um, if you're an authoritarian regime, there's very little constraint on you making the wrong choices. I mean, ultimately, you know, in a capitalist system, I'm a capitalist, in a capitalist system, if a company is producing a product you don't want, you don't buy it. Uh, if they're charging too much rent, you move and try and rent somewhere else. You have choice. Uh, and there's no accident that capitalism, in a sense, is the counterpoint of democracy. It's very difficult to introduce democracy in a state that hasn't got capitalism. It's very difficult to introduce capitalism in an authoritarian state. Um, and the problem with an authoritarian state is you are more likely to invest in things which have no real uh, 
value in terms of their economic productivity simply because they fulfill, on the other hand, one of your political goals. Um, so I, I, I'd actually, you know, I worry about a lot of things. I'm a worrier, but I actually would rather put my money on uh, democrat democratic capitalism than on authoritarian planned societies. There are obviously difficulties, and I, you know, if you might, I don't wish to be offensive, but there are many faults in my society, lots and lots of faults in my society and political system in both Europe and Britain, however you wish to think of their relationship. I have to say, as an outsider, there are things you could do better yourselves, but, you know. That's... Uh, um, I think at the moment, I'll stop on those, but what I'd like to do is just, if I've got a time, I'd just like to make one or two general conclusions about this, because it does seem to me, you know, sometimes when you talk about history, it's interesting. I, you very kindly allowed me to talk about could the British have won the American War of Independence, which I think was an interesting topic. I hope it was an interesting topic, but it was not tremendously germane to the present day. Uh, you know, I've got news for you. There isn't a, un, uh, some bunker underneath Whitehall in which the British government is planning to at attack the United States once you've used up all your cruise missiles. But, but if, if, um, if, if I might just make one or two points, one of the things about this is we're talking about what is within the edge of memory. Many of you will have had parents who or grandparents that went through this. I can remember uh, my maternal uh, grandmother could remember Zeppelin's bombing, uh, bombing London. You know, it was a very vivid memory for her. Um, so we're talking about what is really our history, either direct, we've experienced it, or indirect, in that we've experienced it through the conversation and life of those we have known. And I think that's actually important because that is how memories are formed. And our collective memory, and the collective memory is the way we discuss things, and it's the kind of things like this, this museum, this society here. Our collective memory is very important in the way in which we frame our understanding of the world. Now, what one's doing when one's framing one's understanding of the world is, I think, trying to do two intellectual problems. And I've tried to cast light on both of them here. Obviously, we could go on for hours, but I've just tried to cast light on them. One, we are trying to frame an understanding of, as it were, our values, in this case, the values of the United States, and why and what, within which context it went to war. And I'm trying to show that this is the product in part of the ideas of a small number of people. Mahan, for example, was a tremendously important individual, but it was also how it worked its way through the nature of American politics and society in the period. But secondly, not in order necessarily to agree, in fact, often to disagree, to be able to better understand the challenge or even threat it poses, you need to be able to understand the challenge placed and posed by other values. You could argue, I would argue, that one of the great problems of the isolationists in the 1920s is they simply didn't understand the long-term challenge posed to America by, on the one hand, uh, Soviet communism and its ambition to be global, uh, and its explicit ambition to be global, and on the other hand, the potential that you would get German revisionism. Uh, they didn't understand that. Funnily enough, they did get right the other threat posed to America at that point, or at least the Navy did, which was the risk of Japan. 
and they were already planning for war with Japan, uh, although they didn't realize how difficult that task would be. So part of the purpose of thinking about the world is trying to understand not just your own values, but how those own values take on weight, meaning, and moment in terms of the context set by the challenge of other peoples. Each society tends to be bad at that because each society tends to see the world as a projection of itself. That is normal. That's how we tend to behave. Why don't they think like us is a normal response to seeing what appears to be foolish matters in one's own society or foolish matters in other societies. And it's easy to understand why we should respond to that. But insofar as we are political agents wanting what is best for our society and wanting for it better to re realize its goals, one needs to try harder. In a way, in 1917, 1918, 1919, if you were an American, you only needed to read about what was going on and to think about what was going on in Russia to realize the potential challenge that it posed. You only needed to appreciate the nature of the sea or the ocean, which is that you can project your power against the ocean, across the ocean, but somebody else can project their power back across it, and of course, if you were sitting in Hawaii in 1941, you very much saw that. And I'll end on a reflection that was made to me, because I was really quite, uh, you know, quite moved by it in its old, own way. I remember giving a lecture at the University of uh, Virginia, and uh, one of the people there very kindly took me out to a dinner at their country club. We're talking about uh, an earlier generation. And the woman was telling me that as a little child, uh, she'd been... Um, playing inside uh, in December 1941, and her mother had said, come outside, you can see history being made. That's what she said to me. Very powerful line for a historian. Her mother was the wife of a naval officer at Pearl Harbor, and she was seeing Japanese planes bombing the ships in the anchorage there. So it is worth bearing in mind that ultimately, um, you can have your own views on what you think about the rest of the world, but the rest of the world can always come at you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jeremy Black. Thank you all for coming. I also want to announce on Tuesday, May 30th, we have another talk in conjunction with World War I, Beyond the Trenches, with the president of Bard College, a music historian, Leon Botstein, and his wife, curator of American art at the Whitney, Barbara Haskell, and they'll be discussing World War I's influence on American art and music. This will be the third time we have them with us, I will be moderating. I have uh, been with them each time, and they are extremely interesting and, as a couple, extremely funny. So I we still have seats left. I encourage you to come. It's, we'll have a great night all together. And thank you again for coming.